Welcome back to Mind Matters News. This week, we're joined by IEEE fellow and retired National Science Foundation program director, Paul Werbos. Early in his career, Paul developed the neural network training algorithm known as error backpropagation, which has been foundational to the vast majority of today's advances in artificial intelligence. Listen in as we revisit his work in this area and other topics, including his tenure with the National Science Foundation, which he described as the greatest temple of truth in the history of humanity. Enjoy! Greetings, I'm your guiding host, Robert J. Marks. Artificial neural networks are everywhere. Given a big gob of data, neural networks can be trained to understand the data. For example, you train on a neural network on a bunch of pictures of sumo wrestlers and basketball players. Then, given a picture never seen before, the neural network will identify it as a sumo wrestler or a basketball player. The applications are legion, ranging from finance, power load forecasting, detecting disease from medical images, and even predicting what crops a farmer should plant next year. Neural networks are ubiquitous. A search for neural networks on Google Scholar returns over 2 million, 2 million scholarly papers on the topic. Now, these are just not posts or news articles about neural networks. These are, these are scholarly papers collectively known as the literature. And most of these papers use something called error backpropagation, an algorithm invented by our guest today. And our guest is Dr. Paul Werbos. He's an American mathematician and machine learning pioneer, and maybe is best known for his PhD dissertation, which first described the process of training artificial neural networks through backpropagation of errors. Paul has served as the president of the International Neural Network Society and as a recipient of the IEEE Neural Network Pioneer Award. In 2011, he received the HEB Award of the International Neural Network Society, and he's a fellow of the IEEE. That's pretty prestigious. IEEE is the largest professional organization in the world, but only one-tenth of one percent of its members can be admitted to the fellow status each year. Uh, Dr. Werbos is also a retired program director from the National Science Foundation, where he oversaw the NSF's program in neural networks and machine learning. He has served as a congressional aide in many aspects, including to the late U.S. Senator Arlen Specter. Paul, welcome. It's great to talk to you again, Robert, and, and thank you for that kind introduction. Okay. You, you know, Paul, I was thinking... I'm an electrical engineer, and we are taught algorithms as undergraduates and graduate students. And I would think of those algorithms that we are taught that your algorithm, currently called error back propagation, probably is in the top 10 algorithms used currently in computers. So if we look across the world and look at the algorithms being executed, I think that yours would be in the top 10. And I'm thinking of things such as compression, like doing zip files. I think that's a pretty common algorithm. I'm thinking of Fourier transforms like the FFT. There's something in JPEG images using the cosine transform that uses uh, the Fourier transform. And I think error backpropagation is probably up there. So I think yesterday around the world of the algorithms I'm thinking of, that yours is in the top 10. What do you think? Uh, easily, easily. <laughs> okay. Um, so the, the problem people have out there to try to understand what's going on in the world today, they're just a whole lot of pieces. And, and you don't really know what's happening till you can put them together and know what they are. 
And it's really scary to be one of the few people in the world, even now, who really knows what these algorithms are. I see people talking about artificial intelligence and neural nets in their future. And it's amazing what kind of theories you can hear on TV, uh, a lot of it from people who have political motivations. And the connection between those theories and the real technology and the real math, it's like a hundred years difference. Yeah. So do you think that there's a lot of fake news about artificial intelligence? I certainly do. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's overwhelming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Could we start? Could you give kind of a high level nutshell overview of, of your algorithm, errorback propagation, which is the dominant 99.9% uh, of the time used as the algorithm for training artificial neural networks? So, back propagation really came from me trying to understand how brains work and how you could build a brain like a brain. And when I was growing up, I read a lot of books I was excited by. There's a book called Computers and Thought, which was the start of the whole artificial intelligence world. And believe it or not, I was inspired by a chapter by Marvin Minsky, who said we could build human-like intelligence by using something he called reinforcement learning. And I said, wow, it would be nice to build something that can do it. And then later I met Minsky and he said, nah, that idea never worked. I couldn't figure out how to do it. Nobody could figure out how to do it. And I said, I can figure out how to do it because, <laughs> because I knew the math. And a lot of these people were sort of like glorified hackers. They were looking at themselves in the mirror at how proud they were, how clever they were, and they didn't go to the math. Well, they, I call these people keyboard engineers. They just sit down and they, they go to the keyboard and that's where they try to get all their answers as opposed to understanding the underlying deeper mathematics. That, that's exactly the key thing. We need to understand the math to get it right. And so I spent a lot of time reading John von Neumann. And von Neumann had a lot of really good thoughts about how to do it. And I was amazed people didn't follow up on some of these thoughts. So I decided, well, okay, I'll take the mathematical approach. I'll solve these mathematical problems. Here's how to do it. And believe it or not, Reinforcement learning was the first thing, how to come up with a system that could learn to act and achieve goals. And then I realized, okay, to make this work, I need to have a subsystem that learns how the world works. And that's what they now call backpropagation. But that backpropagation, which I developed, was actually a part of a larger design for intelligent systems. And in 1972, I presented that to my Harvard thesis PhD committee. And I said, okay, this is what I want to do my PhD thesis on. I actually posted that thesis proposal in a, in a weird place called Vixra. And there it is, 1972. Here's how to use backpropagation to learn how the world works dynamically over time and how to use that as part of an optimal decision system and here's how it fits the brain. And when I presented that to the Harvard faculty, their response was, there's enough material here for a thesis. In fact, maybe there's too much. How about you take a little piece of it, the piece we can understand, and write, write your thesis on that piece. So I said, okay. So they didn't believe backpropagation at first. Well, in fact, you talked about Marvin Minsky, and I think he was one of the people that did not like neural networks. 
that, that's true. He wrote a classic book with, with, with Papper called Perceptrons, which kind of killed the funding of neural networks and one of the waves of, of neural networks. So it's interesting that your inspiration came from Marvin Minsky, who didn't like that. He, he liked the rule-based way of looking at artificial intelligence. Well, he, he started out believing in reinforcement learning, and maybe he even believed in neural nets, but he couldn't make it work. He couldn't find anyone who could make it work. And then he said, okay, we'll play with something else. If I can't do it, it must be impossible. That was his basic uh, problem. Well, one of the things that you did with Arabic propagation is you overcame the objections, or at least the main objection, which was raised by Minsky and Peppert in their book, Perceptrons, that kind of dethroned neural networks. You came around with a method to get around that. In fact, it's more entertaining than that. The real history has never been written. It's like a soap opera you wouldn't believe. So one episode of the soap opera, I needed support to do a thesis. And I had taken independent studies with Marvin Minsky. I knew his way of thinking. And I walked in and said, Marvin, you've got this great book. But the thing is, the problem can be solved. Here's how to solve it. Why don't we become co-authors so that you don't be embarrassed when it comes out? You know, I'm willing to share. I'm not trying to own all this. Here's how you solve the problem that you described in your book. That was a great conversation. But the bottom line was Marvin Minsky kind of said at the end, this may be true, but if I do this, the modelers will all kill me. (laughs) And and I have to deal with my, my reputation. And, you know, bottom line is... All those people who think they know how brains work, who don't know how brains work, they'll kill me if I start getting associated with a different way of doing how brains work. Oh my goodness. And he never really changed, did he? He never came over to what he called the connectionist model, the neural network model. In a way, I think what he did was he decided to avoid the subject. Was that it? Okay. So so yeah, he, he wrote some books about society of mind and he said some things about language So he basically wrote about some other subjects. That's basically what happened. And to be honest, I even once decided, hey, let's try to make peace. I never wanted to make war. So when I was at NSF, I said, tell you what, Marvin, there's a part of your book they never really paid attention to. The part about what you can do with recurrent networks that you can't do with feed-forward networks. And you had a lot to do with the pioneering of recurrent neural networks, too, where you had feedback in, oh, yeah. in, in the system. Yes. Yeah, well, actually, there, there are many kinds of feedback in the brain and in any really powerful intelligent system. There are many kinds of feedback. And there is the short-term training feedback which I think of as a lot like what they pay you to do an odd job around the house. Uh, It's very, very similar. Um, In fact, there's a mathematical parallel. This is is just a casual observation. There is mathematical economics, which matches exactly to what we do with backpropagation. It's it's very precise. We can learn a lot about economics from knowing this math. But, But leaving that aside, there's another level of recurrence we are constantly changing your view of the world. Like when we see things, the image we see in our mind is not what comes to our eyes. It's an image we make up in our cerebral cortex, the outer surface of our brain. We make up an image of the world 
And every time we see something, we adjust our inner image of the world, but our image of the world is something different. And, and so there's a kind of feedback when we adjust our image of the world. It's not like learning. It's just adapting to where we are. So that, that, that kind of recurrence is important to how we see things in reality. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I offered Minsky, a, I even said, hey, I'm at NSF now. I can give out eager awards, the kind of network you described in your book, the good part of the book. That is a powerful network. It'll do things that the simple feed forward nets can't do. So I'd be willing to send a grant to you at, at MIT uh, if you guys are willing to work out more of the mathematics of this kind of recurrent network and what kind of power it has. But he never followed up. Just to kind of elaborate, you got your PhD from Harvard, and I believe you did a lot of interface with MIT faculty. Is that is MIT just down the road from Harvard? Oh, well, they, they had an arrangement where you could cross-register, and I took a few courses at MIT. And at some point, I needed money. There comes a point in the story of a graduate student when you have to figure out where's your income going to come from. Absolutely. And, and there was a joint Harvard-MIT software project called the Cambridge Project. And they offered me a job to implement backpropagation in the MIT time series processor system. This is for econometric models. So the very first application of backpropagation in the world was not actually to neural nets. Uh, I took the general theorem out of my thesis and applied it to econometric models. And it worked. And that's how I got a job. And uh, it turns out it was a joint Harvard-MIT project, but the paycheck said MIT. Okay. Okay. That's fascinating. I want to take you back to uh, to your time in the 1970s when you came up with this idea. As you mentioned, it was a much larger idea when you were thinking about it. But um, if you look at the mathematics, if those that are interested in looking at the mathematics behind Arabic propagation, it's really beautiful. I think it was Paul Erdos said that there's certain mathematics that can be written in God's book. This is just beautiful mathematics that is as simple as possible and no simpler. And there's just kind of a beauty of it. I think mathematicians look at this like a a connoisseur of fine art would look at a great painting and say, oh, I see such beauty there. And I see this beauty in Arabic propagation. Can you remember back when this first entered your mind? I'm interested in the process of creativity. We kind of know what motivated you. Do you remember having like a flash of genius when you did this? Do you remember the time when it came to your mind? You know, yes, I do. But first, I guess I owe people a warning that we are entering a period when there is no problem so simple that one flash does the whole thing. Okay. And, and, and usually when people say one flash does the whole thing, what that meant was they were hung up and one flash got them out of that hang up. But usually there were half a dozen hang ups before that. Well, no, that's a good point. And I think a lot of people have talked about a flash of genius as a sequence of flashes of genius. So that's, that's consistent with what you're talking about. Yes. So there has to be motivation. So let me come to the, the moment I think that's closest to what you're saying. Actually, maybe there are two moments now that I think of it. But when I was not even in high school yet, I had a sort of obnoxious friend who really believed in, in Sigmund Freud and was telling all of us how crazy we were. Well, I tell you, Paul, that sounds like an oxymoron, and I'm not, uh, <laughs> an obnoxious friend. Yeah. Okay. 
So he, he explained to me how Freud thinks about how the human mind works. And I listened. Half, half the mathematicians I know would never listen to a guy like that. And then other people would worship Freud and they never understood the math. But I said, you know, it sounds to me like there's something here. And I thought about it. And at some point I wanted to train neural nets to do things like recognize characters. And I, I kind of figured out how to do that. And that was in what I proposed. I remember pro going to Professor Ho at Harvard, like 1970 or 71, saying, I think I can demonstrate a new algorithm that, that will recognize patterns. I thought it would be a nice little demo. It was a small part of my bigger theory. I said, we can recognize things like characters with this kind of an algorithm, and here's how it works. And Ho said he wouldn't believe it would work. I showed the exact algorithm of backpropagation. He said, not in a million years would this ever work. And so with the Harvard faculty, the first thing was I had to prove it. And then I thought back and said, okay, well, I took a course in mathematical logic many years ago from a guy named Alonzo Church at Princeton. I know what a theorem is. I can prove this. I can you, turn you this. Had, you, you took a course from Alonzo Church? That was the guy that consulted with Turing. When I was in high school, I took a graduate course of uh, Alonzo Church. I, I, I took the bus from my high school to Princeton to take Church's course, and I got graduate course credit before I graduated from high school. So I knew a bit of logic, to put it mildly. So cool. And, 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 and they said, and they said we, we don't believe it works. You have to prove it. I said, hey, I know how to do a proof. So the most important part of my PhD thesis, some people say, is I translated backpropagation. First it was Freud, then it was an algorithm, and then it was mathematics. So I translated it into something I called the chain rule for ordered derivatives and proved it very concisely and very rigorously and very directly from first principles as a universal way to get the kind of derivatives you need for many applications. Neural nets, econometric models, sensitivity analysis, and I had all those applications lined up, and I pretty much implemented all of them by the time I was done. And there was a next generation, in fact, where the first generation, you can only do it for feed-forward systems, and then I figured out how to do it for really true simultaneous recurrence, which is what a lot of econometric models are. And you can do a lot of stuff with it. That is interesting. You, um, I, I think you had a little bit of pushback from your PhD committee. You mentioned uh, Dr. Ho, uh, for example. Um, what was going on? What was their pushback? Was it similar to what Minsky was saying or what was going on? As I say, it's like a soap opera. Every person is a different story. There's a key step in getting a PhD from Harvard then. The rule was we had to have an oral exam where we would defend two possible thesis topics. I was thinking about a topic in quantum physics, but I decided I wouldn't solve it in time, so I got to do something easier. What are the two easier topics I would defend? One is a mathematical model of intelligence, which would do pattern recognition and decision making, just like a brain. That was the easier topic. And then there was something about... Um, the mathematics underlying the dynamics of history. And when I was defending these topics, they wanted to talk about history. They were so surprised at the things I could tell them about how history works 
and biology and Spangler and all of that, I didn't even have time to talk about the theory of intelligence. So after they passed me on that, I think they were a little surprised that I decided I was going to pursue the theory of intelligence. And it took a long time to get acceptance, and it went through a lot of steps. But eventually they accepted it, but I had to change things. I guess it's the way it is with a lot of theses. If you have a new idea, you have to go through a few iterations. And I did, and it, it worked out in the end. But Ho was not part of that thesis committee. He had a close friend named Mara, who was in similar areas, who was on the committee. And, and we had Ma Steller, who was a crucial statistician. Ma Steller played a critical role. And my thesis advisor was Carl Deutsch, a political scientist. And the way he saved me was, he said, you guys don't know whether this thing will work. Well, I have a very hard problem. I have eaten dozens of graduate students trying to translate my theory into mathematics that works, and they always failed. If this works, that should be enough for a PhD, right? And they said, okay, if he can do it. And they <laughs> doubted I could do it, but I did it. You know, the... This reminds me, I don't know if you know the history of John Baptiste Fourier. He was the father of the Fourier transform. His uh, his examining committee included incredible mathematicians like Lagrange, Laplace, and Legendre. And if you're a mathematician, these these names, you go, wow, wow, wow. Well, I, I, I recognize those names. Yeah, you recognize them. And they did not like Fourier's uh, dissertation. They said, uh, hmm. that we don't think that this is going to work. So, I, you know, this is a characteristic of great ideas, I believe. Yeah, that, that's neat. Yeah, that's, it is. That, that is neat because I can relate that to stuff like in control theory. People use Fourier analysis in ways that would make Lagrange cringe. Yeah, oh, exactly, exactly. Well, what, what they didn't like about it, Paul, was that was that how could you fit a, a function which had quick discontinuities with smooth sinusoids? They didn't like that. That was against their experience. But again, you know, Fourier dominated and probably has one of the algorithms implemented as the fast Fourier transform, which is up there with your algorithm and error back propagation, which is the most commonly used algorithm in the world right now. So, so, so I translated Freud into math. Von Neumann <laughs> translated Fourier into math. Okay. Okay. That's fascinating. Now in your thesis, you didn't call it error back propagation. I think, no. what did you call it? I, I use the term dynamic feedback. Dynamic feedback, okay. That's what I call it. Later on, someone told me the term backpropagation was used by Rosenblatt to describe a totally different algorithm. But there are a lot of people out there who will take a word that sounds good and use it for something else. So that's what they did. Rosenblatt, by the way, was one of the early pioneers in neural networks and yeah. laid, laid the foundation for the perceptron. And your uh, your error back propagation is applied to a neural network, at least in the feed forward term, yeah. uh, which is called the layered perceptron. So he was uh, he came up with the word. He, <laughs> he did came up with the word. He just didn't come up with the algorithm. Didn't have the math. That's the problem. So yeah, in the paper that he did, did he talk about error back propagation at all, or how why he called it that? Other people have told me that's where they got the word. But I, but I, I, I read a little bit of Rosenblatt, but not so much. Okay. Now I got to admit, Paul. Historically, I was introduced uh, to your algorithm through the books of uh, Rummel Hart and Hinton. The, I think they call them the CDC books, and I, f I even forget what the initials stand P for. PDP, Parallel Distributed Processing. PDP. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. I, I've. I've 
long since lost my copies of that. Uh, did they reference you or did they come on this uh, independently or what's the deal? Um, there are happy and sad aspects of the history. And in fact, there's a book called Talking Nets by Anderson and golly, I really should remember. I'm, I'm familiar with it. It was interviews with many of the pioneers yeah. in neural networks. So part of the history, I spent a whole chapter talking about it. It's probably not helpful to the community, but let's just say I learned a lot of sobering lessons about what it takes to survive in this world and uh, what you have to assume. I was very excited when my boss at the Department of Energy in 1980 suddenly got funding to study something that sounded like it wanted neural nets. And I said, hey, I can do this for you. And I was told it was a policy by real high up Department of Energy people. Find the right idea and then give it to the right people. Okay. And he said, this is the right idea, but you're not the right person. And he funded the Rummelhart Group. <laughs> really? You know, That's, that... That that goes to the point that I make is I think MIT could burn to the ground and in 10 years it would still be ranked number one in terms of uh, in terms of prestige in the nation. There's kind of a, a brand that funding often, often follows and that sounds like it was the case with you. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I learned a lot about the funding of science. Um, when I was working on that project at MIT and Harvard and I really wanted to do dramatic new things, I discovered the main barrier to my doing dramatic things there was that, well, the funding agents want X, Y, and Z, and we have to give them this. So I said, okay, if I want to change the world, if I want to change the culture, I got to become one of the funding agents. Okay. And that was a successful strategy for changing the world. <laughs> and that's what you did. You want to work for the National Science Foundation as a program director. That's kind of cool. Uh, it, let me ask you this. This is kind of a new question. Do you think that a version of airbag propagation occurs in the human brain? You've, you've alluded to the fact you think it does. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, God, could I elaborate on that? <laughs> uh, I think I sent you some links. We will make sure that all the links you've provided are available in the podcast notes, and we'll also provide a link to Talking Nets. Okay, so so let, let, let me start with an easier one. Let me start with an easy one. Okay. Um, uh, my website might be a little too big, but it's easy to remember, www.werbos.com. Oh, that's a rough one, werbos.com, yeah. okay. Yeah, and near the top, it starts with very general stuff, but I have a wild and wooly and crazy link. And only now that I'm older, I'm living off of a pension, I don't have to worry about offending people so much. All right. There, there, there is a link called Mind, Brain, and Soul from the Viewpoint of Mathematical Realism. And if you click on that, it gives a link to a one-hour talk on new discoveries about how the brain works. When I retired from NSF, I said, I'm not constrained by the government anymore. Damn it. I'm going to do what I wanted other people to do that they never did. So I went to the very best real-time brain data available in the entire world. Uh, it came from the lab of a guy named Busaki, who's number one in that field right now. And I went to his data. I analyzed it. 
And the data is very clear that the higher centers of the brain follow my model, follow this kind of algorithm much more than they follow any of the kinds of models people were talking about in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and that includes, and backpropagation is part of these algorithms. Um, in fact, let me say, I, I got a hint of this data earlier. I was speaking to a guy from NIH, the guy famous for the work on neural coding, Barry Richmond. And Richmond once told me, after he'd had a little bit to drink, he said, the data we see is so weird. You wouldn't believe it. I can't, I, I don't want to publish it because it's so damn weird. I asked him, what do you see? When we look at the real-time data from the cerebral cortex, we see a forward pass followed by a backward pass in the opposite direction. Could you imagine something like that? He asked. It sounds like error back propagation, right? <laughs> I, you could imagine how easily I could, I could imagine something like that. He's like, you don't think I'm crazy? I said, no, actually I don't. And so I went to look at the data myself. And it's true. You go to the cerebral cortex, you see a forward pass and a backward pass. And the backward pass is in the opposite direction from the forward pass. Hmm. And, and, and it's there in the data. And from that data, we can reconstruct a lot of how the mammal brain works. And it's all there up on the web. And the key papers have been published. And, um, but I'm retired. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know if anyone <laughs> so even reads these papers anymore. But at least it's out there. It is out there. You know, the the thing, I got to tell you, the thing that most impresses me about Arabic propagation as it relates to the human brain. I'm not an expert in the human brain, but I've I've talked to a bunch of um a bunch of people that do know the human brain including Michael Ignor who's the uh, a brain surgeon who doesn't have a high opinion of neuroscience. He says he says neuroscience is all over the place. But the thing that clearly is applicable in a very fundamental sense is Hebb's law. And one of the beauties about error back propagation is as follows. If you look at a deep convolutional neural network, you have thousands, maybe millions of knobs to turn. And turning those knobs in, in, in a global way is certainly not possible. But error back propagation allows you to update all of the, all of the weights, each knob, only by two numbers, the two numbers that are connecting the knobs, if you will. And uh, I, I find that just incredibly powerful in Arabic propagation. And I've seen it used in psychology. They talk about oh, yeah. uh, Hebb's law. What is it? Neurons that fire together or wired together, I think, is the, yeah. is, is, is the little phrase. But that's the reason that you get habits. You develop habits. I used to be a smoker. And I would develop a big habit. And those would be my neurons linking together in my brain neurons that fire together or wired together. And in order to quit smoking, I had to dissolve those interconnections. And I see this sort of thing happening in Arabic propagation, where mm-hmm. just local local events have an impact on the global performance. That is really yeah. astonishing to me and still remains astonishing. Yeah, there was a time when people in computer science said it's impossible that this could work. And really? Oh, golly. In fact, I know the names of people and I shouldn't repeat them because they made honest mistakes in some cases. Well, um, I've never, have you ever made an honest mistake? (laughs) I certainly have. So, yeah. So there was a time I was still at NSF. There was a time maybe around 2005. 
I, I even sent some money to computer scientists in cross-disciplinary projects. I was amazed. One of them became co-author of the number one textbook in computer science, and people cited it as a Bible. And in this Bible, it said, and of course, neural networks will never be able to solve these kinds of problems. We all know that. This is the inherent limit. We have these problems, and we computer scientists know these problems, and those idiots who want to use neural nets, general learning machines. My God, don't don't you know you've got to have expert systems? It's got to be hardwired and all that stuff. And, and I looked at that stuff, um, and most of the big computer science companies were informed by those kind of experts. However, we changed the game. And the way we changed the game... Out of NSF, I funded a project with Andrew Ung and Jan LeCun, and this was the birth of the deep learning revolution. If ah. you think something happened in this century, if you think the game changed, I believe it all goes back to this grant that I gave to LeCun and to Andrew Ung, and we all talked about the substance before it went out. People didn't want me to fund that grant. People threatened me with a lawsuit if I funded it. And they said, it's sure not, yeah, they said, this is not sufficiently innovative. He's using old algorithms that you used before uh, on problems people have studied before. It's not innovative enough. Uh -huh. But under the rules, I was able to make an argument. They made an exception. They let me fund it. And then Andrew Ong went to Google, to Sergey Brin, and said, we use these neural net algorithms. And here's what they did, which was impossible. And they did it. We broke the world's record on A, B, C, D, and E. And, and when Andrew Ung went to Sergey Brin with that, Sergey Brin has a video talk up to the World Economic Forum. I posted a link to it on my webpage. If people have patience, my webpage has a link to Sergey Brin's speech where he said, yeah, and this guy, you know, basically Andrew Ung came around and showed him that they work after all. And his feeling was, my God, my, my teacher didn't tell me the truth. This stuff works. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that, isn't that the truth with, uh, with, with any innovation? The National Science Foundation, or NSF, is a powerful force in guiding research in academia in the United States. A grant from the NSF is very prestigious. If a new professor is awarded an early career award from NSF, they got tenure, almost certainly. So what's going on at NSF behind the scenes? Hey, what year, what year did you retire from NSF? You said you retired. Yes. So it's a long story. I started there in 1988, and I my retirement... I came home to work for a new boss, my wife, on Valentine's Day 2015. 2015. So you spent, before that, over 30 years as program director, as a program director at NSF, that largely steered NSF's interest and research into artificial neural networks. During your tenure at NSF, what, what did you see the major turning points in machine intelligence? You mentioned last podcast, the genesis of deep learning is one of them. Yeah, it became obvious to me on day one. My understanding of how a brain works and what real intelligence is requires a lot of steps forward. And I wrote down these steps 
And the question is, how long will it take for our science culture to catch up to even half of it? And I do have papers out there with roadmaps. One of them goes 100 years into the future. And I know how to get there. It's just people have to do the work. There's just a lot of steps. And so I would say my whole tenure, my 30 years at NSF, I went through one step after another, after another. It's like every four years, it was like a different world. And the steps are not all done yet. In the very beginning, people did not believe in neural networks almost anywhere. And why was that? I think that that was because of the uh, terrible fall of interest in neural networks. And I I kind of time it to the publication of the book Perceptrons by Minsky and Papert that dried up the research. And so people were disillusioned. And so yes. neural networks had to be reproved using the yes. algorithm that you created uh, in order to show that many of the objections raised by Minsky and Papert were, were wrong. And so that was yeah. what you were up against, right? That's, that is pretty much the story. But there were a whole lot of other little stories too. When I had that little talk with Minsky I mentioned, I, I was talking about why, why it was that the, none of those neural networks they came up with were working. And I basically said there are a couple of things you got to change. But number one is it's a bad model of the neuron. You're assuming the neuron is a square wave generator. It's like you think it's a digital thing. Everybody <laughs> believed you're scientific only if you're digital. You output ones and zeros, you're scientific. Anything else is not scientific. And our brain being intelligent must be scientific, so it must be based on ones and zeros. And that's right. Your error back propagation algorithm, although highly digital, is based on continuous partial derivatives and calculus. So in front of Marvin Minsky, when he repeated, oh, yeah, but everybody knows the brain is one zero, I said, you know what? I took this course in neuroscience at Harvard. Let me show you the textbook. Let me show you the time series of the outputs of these neurons. Do these things look like square waves to you? Look at these things. Let's build a model that fits the data. And the data shows that it's basically frequency coding. Above a certain level, there's a limit to how much output you have. There's a lower limit, an upper limit. And you can pretend it's linear in the intermediate range, but the point is, it's continuous. It's not one zero. You have continuous variables. And if you do it that way, then I said, I have a new way to calculate derivatives and I can prove that it'll work. So we have a provable way to do the derivatives. We have a provable way to train it and it fits the empirical data. But Minsky didn't like your argument. And Minsky said, but all the computational neuroscientists know the brain is a square wave generator. And they all know it's ones and zeros. That's what McCulloch told us. And if I disagreed with a neuroscientist, they would laugh at me because I'm not from the right field. I'm not from their field. You've got to be a neuroscientist to get away with stuff like that. And I said, but what if there's data? Even data won't change them. If you're not one of the right people, they won't listen to you. That's what he said. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so what, what were some of the other turning points you saw? Uh, could you elaborate on the deep learning? I think the deep learning is is largely credited to Jeffrey Hinton, who came up with convolutional convolutional neural networks. Oy but vey. What's that? Oy vey. I, I'm not Jewish, but there are times when you got to say oy vey. So the, the, there is so much false history out there. It's just pathetic. Well, I've seen even an article where Jeffrey Hinton was credited because of his... Uh, involvement with the PDB book as being the originator of error back propagation. 
yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff. Which is not true. You were the one that did that. No, no. And, 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 and not only that, it wasn't independently rediscovered either. That's also false. I don't want to get into the whole history of who did what, with what motive. It's not very constructive. Well, we talk about uh, the, the book uh, Talking Net, where you Talking Nets, yeah. where you get into that. Yeah, some of that. Right. There's a lot more. <laughs> they thought that was racy. They, they didn't even see the half of what, what's happened. But, but let me come back. Okay. The, P, the PDP books do have a role in history. There's no question that the history of the field was strongly influenced by the PDP books. And I think that that old boss of mine was involved in funding them somehow. Uh, I was talking about that too. But bottom line is these books were influential. No question about it. And the cognitive science part was really very insightful in cognitive science. But the main machine that Hinton was pushing was something called a Boltzmann machine. And the quick summary is it basically didn't work. It was based on not understanding the math. I remember Boltzmann machines. And we're going to talk about annealing later on, which I think he used in the Boltzmann machine. But uh, let's not go there now. But the bottom line is, uh, you got into Hinton because of something else. I got into Hinton because um, I, convolutional neural networks, which I think, by the way, convolutional neural networks, I don't know who came up with the idea, but they're brilliant. Okay. Convolutional neural nets became popular when I was at NSF. And I have to admit, the first that I heard of the standard convolutional neural network, uh, I thought of it as a kludge. So see, it works, and it was something I wasn't backing. Where did it come from? It came from AT&T Bell Labs. Really? And, and if I had to guess, I would say, I think it came from a French woman, to be honest. Uh, either that or an Israeli woman. They, they had a whole group. The, the Bell Labs group was really amazing. And certainly, Jan LeCun was a key part of that group. There's no doubt. Jan LeCun was a lot of the success of that group. But there were, there were a lot of other really important and creative people there whose names should come to my head. But the bottom line is they were the ones who took this idea. I believe it started in France. I think it was the group that was working together like in a small company in Paris. And then they moved to Bell Labs where they became routinized. And I think Jan LeCun has some personal affection for Jeff Hinton, who was kind of bringing him to the world of cognitive science, which is an important world, uh, connecting him to a community. Uh, but to be honest, uh, I, I really don't think the convolutional network came from him. I I'm pretty sure it came from this group in France. And, and then with Lacune. And, and uh, for many, many years, I certainly cited this group. In fact, I remember there were like 15 authors of the seminal paper on the convolutional network. And there were early tests by the post office on, on who can recognize zip code characters. There were two groups that just beat the world in the competition that the post office set up. Oh, that would be, that would be a perfect application for convolutional neural networks, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and, okay. and that's sort of where it started. This huge zip code recognition competition funded by the post office and I later worked with the guy, I believe he was a Chinese American who moved to UTC, who led that competition. There were so many false papers about that competition. So many people said, I won this competition with X. I won it with Y. 
And so I went to the guy who actually ran the competition. I said, hey, you got the scores. Who won it? He said two groups won it, and they both had convolutional neural nets from independent sources, one German, one French originally. And, and, and I believe that Lacune's group was one of the two that really won the competition. It was a huge breakthrough. They did much better than anybody ever did on that problem before. But it was just the zip code recognizer because the original convolutional network had certain limitations. And um, we had ways to go beyond that. In fact, we have networks today that are much more powerful than the convolutional networks and in the test, the new networks are much more powerful, but most of the people graduating computer science don't know about them. You mentioned deep learning as one of the things that took off during your tenure at NSF. Mm -hmm. uh, could you differentiate uh, convolutional neural networks, which are a specific case of deep learning from the field in general? Okay. One bad thing that happens when you make it to Oprah and everybody reinvents you they come up with 20 definitions of the same word. You used to think you had a word, and then all of a sudden, there are 20 different definitions. You know, the one that I remember on that, uh, Paul, is artificial intelligence. When when I was a boy in artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence meant the stuff that Minsky did, which yeah. was a rule-based sort of thing. You know, if, if this, then this, if this, then this. And we didn't like this in Connectionist. I think you would probably agree. That's the reason that IEEE started the word computational intelligence to differentiate from artificial intelligence. Well, I, I think you, you were the, yeah, you're the guy who came up with the computational intelligence. Well, yeah, you know, I was, I, I was, I, I was on a team of uh, three people. I think Jim Bezdek and Pat Simpson and I came up with it in an email exchange. But the point is, is that to your point, the definitions change. Uh, today, artificial intelligence subsumes all of this. It, it subsumes neural networks. It, it subsumes expert systems and everything else. So there is, there's an evolution. Uh, it, it assumes a hundred cultures that use different definitions. The same thing with the word consciousness. And even the word love means different things to different people. <laughs> yes. And certainly the word God means different things to different people. Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. And, and then the question is, which of these things are the real ones and which are the made up definitions? And believe it or not, we have that problem even in the world of neural nets. So to me, to me, convolutional neural nets and deep learning, I think they're well-defined words, but most people are hearing different things these days. Uh, to me, um, what the deep learning originally meant is just you have many, many layers, typically with a feed-forward network. And we were doing many, many layers long before these people were using the term deep learning. I was funding, supporting, and actually I wrote the original mathematics for because if with one or two layers, everybody could see just by eyeball. Yes. If you wanted to do it with many layers, you've got to know the math. So I funded a guy named Krishna Kumar working with NASA who applied many, many layers. And he was doing this long before any computer scientist had even heard of the term deep learning. And he didn't even call it that. I didn't call it that. I think my paper in ICNN in 1988 was the first uh, reasonably open publication of what you can do with many, many, many layers and how to do it. But there's a problem with that. Okay. Yes, we can use many, many layers. The mathematics of many, many layers is good. But the way the brain does it is different. 
The brain has a more powerful way to do the same thing using the same math, but more general. The kind of recurrence that we have in the brain can do anything a deep network can do and basically better. So understanding how to really use recurrence is much more powerful than what they're doing with the deep learning. But, you know, having many layers can be useful and there's good mathematics and it's the same mathematics. So that's deep learning. Uh, the term deep learning became popular when a bunch of computer scientists learned 20 years later stuff we were doing before. But they applied it and it was useful. They have every reason to be proud that they brought it to application. But convolutional networks are totally different. Convolutional networks are something I don't think I really understood until the late 1990s. Well, you beat me. I, I think I only, only understood about five years ago. So, okay. So, um, I, 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 got, I think I got something like seven patents at about just the late 1990s. And, and those patents already address many of the technologies of the future that they still haven't fully caught up to because they're just a whole lot of pieces. Oh, how many patents do you have? They're probably expired by now, but probably about, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, something like did, that. Did you get these when you worked for NSF or these after? Yes. So it's, it's assigned to the government, I suppose. Um, you asked about how NSF is doing. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm glad I won't have to get into every gory detail because they got ups and downs like the whole world. But for many, many years, the Office of General Counsel, the number one lawyer for NSF, there was a guy named Charles Brown. And when I think of the greatest glories of NSF in its absolute peak period, Charles Brown, the general counsel, had a lot to do with it. He really? went to the Harvard Law School. He learned about freedom. He learned about free speech, intellectual truth. I mean, a whole lot of very basic principles. He understood the spirit of the Constitution and his way of dealing with regulations and rules. He respected the rights and the privacy of everybody and the integrity of the system. So at some point, the idea came up, gee, uh, I've got a few ideas. What should I do about patenting? And I talked to him and he said, we now have a clear policy. And in those days, we did. He said, the clear policy is if you come up with a patentable idea, we want you to get it patent. And it won't be an NSF patent. We will have to make a decision whether the idea came from your work as an NSF employee or did it come from outside of your job. And if it came from your work, the government has an interest, which is like a no free use of the thing. But even then you're allowed to patent and we encourage you to patent because if you don't, the Chinese will patent it two years after you invent it and we won't be allowed to use it, he said. <laughs> is that right? Do we have do we have a treaty Pat or a patent treaty with China? Well, times have changed. Patent law has changed. Okay. Patent law has changed. I'd probably have 10 more patents if they hadn't changed the patent law. Okay. Okay. Um, but uh, but they, they have substantially changed the patent law in ways that are not so good for small inventors, in all fairness. Yes. I acted as an expert witness in a number of uh, cases involving kind of computational intelligence, artificial intelligence, yeah. and things have changed. I, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible for the little guy anymore. Right. 
So the only thing the little guy can do is talk to the people in China who are willing to pay for that kind of stuff. And a lot yeah. of that is going on. I have I have a friend who has a bunch of patents, and uh, he says all the patent is good for is the it gives you the right to sue people, and <laughs> that's that's basically what it is, and it costs big bucks yeah. to sue people. So anyway, basically, I had a misunderstanding when I was in early graduate school. Some of my fr- first papers on reinforcement learning, brain-like intelligence, um, I believed that the kind of design I did for my PhD thesis with a few tweaks, parameters, basically could replicate what a mammal brain does. And then I learned a lot about mammal brains. I learned step by step by step, mammal brains do this, do that. There's some fundamental mathematical principles. And you can build a universal intelligence doing what I did in my thesis but it's not a fast universal intelligence. You can build a faster, more powerful one by using some very fundamental principles. And um, I even did a paper in World Congress of Computational Intelligence 2014 in Wiki. I said, here is a four-step procedure, math one, math two, math three, that'll bring you up to at least the mouse level of universal general learning ability. And one of them, one of the key levels I called full spatial intelligence. And it's like a convolutional network, except it exploits more general spatial symmetries. And the more general spatial symmetries give you a power that a normal network doesn't have, a convolutional network doesn't have. You have to have this additional power in the spatial intelligence algorithm. And I was so proud, you know, giving that talk at Wiki and everybody seemed to listen, except the Chinese government really listened and started a new program. And there was a U.S. intelligence (laughs) agency guy there who said, no, no, we can't do this. We have to stop this work in the U.S. Oh, boy. So they stopped that line of research in the U.S. and they expanded it in China. Why? For what reason would they want to stop the U.S. research? Were they going to take it under under the umbrella like of NSA or something? Um, Probably you can only speculate. Yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. Well, I spoke to the guy, but he didn't tell me his total game plan. Okay. And I, I have circumstantial evidence about what happened. I have discussed it with other people at NSF. There were a lot of people at NSF who were concerned about changes that occurred in many areas. And we debated whose fault are they and what's the reason People once told me when I worked for the Department of Energy 10 years before NSF, people used to tell a joke. The Department of Energy has already been privatized. It's a joint corporation owned 60% by the oil industry and 40% by the nukes. And it was like that my last few years there. When I went to NSF, I said, now I'm in a place where the powers that be are the American Physical Society and the deans. And the American Physical Society and the deans respect scientific values a lot more than those other guys did. And that's why that was a big part of why I moved to NSF because the culture was totally the deans and the APS and they're not perfect, but you know, they have high values. But then came this Washington corruption business. My theory is that Washington corruption is what really hit more than anything else. But that's my speculation. I had friends who had other theories. 
I wanted to ask you, since your retirement, I'm sure you've kept your fingers on the pulse of what's happening in our, our neural networks, artificial intelligence. What do you see some of the major advances in machine intelligence since your retirement? Um, I have to confess, one of the joys in retirement is I have a few other retired friends. And one is a woman named Frederica Darema, who used to be head of the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. And every time people ask me, what's a quick summary of what is going on today with all of these algorithms and all of these different forms of AI, mm-hmm. the, the best source I recommend to them, Frederica Darema organized a conference a few months ago, global Zoom type conference on something she calls DDDAS. And if you want to know the answer to your question, the starting point would be do a search on DDDAS, video 2020 or 2021. And from her conference, I learned just how diverse the world is. There are so many different things they call AI. And there are so many experts who think they know things that are mutually contradictory. But I would say out of 100 groups, there's a major percentage where they think the best way to solve the problems of AI is to get rid of it and go back to what we did 40 years ago in mathematics before they even had AI, let alone neural networks. There are are people getting funded to do that, and they persuade people this is the greatest clever thing. You haven't heard of it in the last 20 years. That's because it's 100 years old. Wait wait a minute, Paul. So they, they want to abandon AI I think that that is especially stupid in in terms of only national security. If, if you go to the DDDAS website, you'll see that there are groups who are trying to sell that approach. Out of maybe 100 groups, the biggest number are sort of your routine, cut and dried, baby MLP, 20 years old at least. There were two groups that are just way the hell ahead of them. And in this particular conference, one of them was PWC. And one was RTX. RTX is the new merger of Raytheon and UTC, where my old post office friend went. And um, PwC is, well, Price Waterhouse. What's left over after they killed Arthur Anderson and they got a new co- competitor. And both of those organizations have people who are not doing the more advanced stuff we talked about, but they at least caught up with the most advanced stuff that we were doing. And, and so people will tell you, oh, you'll never build a Terminator robot. Don't, don't worry about things like slaughterbots and Terminator weapons and autonomous weapons. That's all science fiction. And, and these groups would say that's science fiction. Maybe in 100 years we'll learn how to do it. And then another group is doing it and they're building it and nobody is stopping them from doing it. Um, there are people stopping them from advertising it, you know, for obvious reasons. But the bottom line is that there are very advanced projects going on in the world that are decades ahead of almost all of their competition. There is mathematics, which is decades beyond them. So it's just incredible what the diversity is. Wow. Very interesting. You know, you mentioned if somebody has the money, you have to dance to their tune. And that's frustrating sometimes. And we have that 
to a degree at NSF, I think that steering it is important. So research agendas are often dictated by the National Science Foundation, where you spent 30 years as a program director. Uh, to what degree does NSF consider innovative proposals off their radar and don't fit into a predefined program? And is there any thought of, of tuning this trade-off to get the biggest impact for our federal bucks? Since I'm usually criticizing people, let me change my pattern and, and stress the positive because sometimes that's the right thing. I am so grateful that I had those 30 years to work at NSF in part of the period of peak creativity in that building. I even remember a day in, in 2014 when I knew I was going to go in the next year. I remember looking around me in that building in Boston saying, this is the greatest. Gee, I'm, I'm breaking up as I say it. This, this is the greatest true temple of truth in the history of humanity. Wow, that's, that's quite a statement. That, that was how I felt, and I believe it was true. I hope we can do better. There are special areas where they're better, but, but NSF certainly focused on its mission, I believe was the greatest temple of truth in the history of humanity. And, and I'm so grateful that I was able to learn all I could in those surroundings, and it has a lot to do with innovation. Um, the way the NSF became so great was because of a guy named Bush. Okay, the junior, junior or senior? Vanavir Bush. He was at MIT. I forget whether he was only a professor or also a dean. He was high up at MIT in the old days. So this was not a president. This was somebody else. Yeah, it was not a president. It was before me. Uh, be a great president. Um, <laughs> but, but shortly after World War II, there were people who really said, you know, the United States really needs to develop real science. We shouldn't depend only on Germany, for God's sake. Uh, and so Vannevar Bush, apparently he was closer to our neural network world than I knew until a couple years ago. He was not so far from our community. Um, and Vannevar Bush put together uh, a document, a manifesto, uh, The Endless Frontier. And if you go to the NSF webpage today, nsf.gov, and search on the endless frontier, Vannevar Bush, you can still find it. And I'm really glad it's there because that corporate culture, that Bible of NSF was really crucial to being an honest pursuer of truth, which is not what you always get. Could you spell his first name, Vannevar? Vannevar, V-A-N-N-E-V-A-R, Vannevar Bush. Um, and in recent years, I've been talking to UN people saying, you've got to read it. You've got to reinvent this. We need this corporate culture. What you got at the UN is not working. We need a culture that works. Vannevar Bush had a really good manifesto on how to do it. We have learned a little bit. A lot of people at NSF, when I was there, were working very hard on how to do better because a big part of the corporate culture was you are not following uh, it's not the Talmud. It's not a book of rules from ancient times. It's a living guideline. And every year, NSF would really think hard on how can we do the job better. That was true for my whole tenure there. And there were different approaches, different philosophies. 
Uh, again, from 1988 to 2015, I saw a lot of different things. But until about 2014, maybe 2013, we were following Vannevar Bush's corporate culture, and it was the greatest temple of truth there ever was. Now, what was the official role or office of, of Bush uh, at this time? I, I think he was the first director. First director, okay. And I believe it started, didn't John F. Kennedy start the NSF in response to no. Russia's Sputnik? No, no, no. no. That, that was later. Kennedy was later. This was like after World War II. I see. Okay. Go ahead, please. At least I hope I'm not that mixed up. I, I, I went to work there in 1988, so I can't say I really know the history so personally before 1988. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, and a major part of his role was innovation. And when I was there, I was allowed to follow Vannevar Bush's approach. And part of the approach was, uh, I, I did know some economics. Uh, economics, I do have a couple degrees in that. And, and a major part of economics is, what do you do with high-risk research, which cannot be totally funded by just one player? It has value because it cuts across. It has value across many people. And high-risk research is especially suitable for government funding. And I remember people used to ask, what is the role of the government? Shouldn't the private sector do everything? And the best answer that said it should be doing something was an answer that said, well, there, is, there are externalities. There is high-risk research that you can only do on a kind of a pooled basis. So NSF was the source of money of last resource for high-risk projects. Ah. And, and that was really critical. Now, the problem is there's some way out ideas that are so way out, it's difficult to do justice to them. And for a long time, we had many debates on how do you do justice to really out-of-the-box innovation? How do you do justice to fundamental new directions? And I would say from the day they hired me to a year before I left, that was sort of my personal responsibility uh, was to be especially vigilant that we not lose these more aggressive opportunities. Golly, I could talk about that because we were very specific. They hired me to run two programs in 1988, 89. One of them was the neural network program. Yes. And the other one was Emerging Technologies Initiation, a special cross-cutting program designed to fund new emerging areas that wouldn't be funded under the conventional frameworks. So that's the re that's a response to my question. That was the program that allowed people with innovative ideas to propose uh, for funding to the National Science Foundation. Yeah. Great. And by the way, the guy who set it up in the first place was a double E, uh, double degree law and electrical engineering, my first boss. He ran a whole division and I was brought in to run the program. But it changed through time. They, they, they've changed somewhat how they do that. But innovation has always been a major issue. I will never forget the day when the deputy director of engineering said, Paul, when the really weird, hard to understand things come in, like the guy really, it sounds like perpetual motion and it looks like there's math, but we can't believe it. <laughs> the really crazy stuff, we want you to handle the really crazy stuff. And, and so that was a side job I had for a few years. Uh, if it was really, really strange, they would let me try to figure it out. And that was very entertaining.
you mentioned your your tenure at NSF. NSF was, in your own words, the temple of truth. Uh, what's happened since your retirement? Do you have any forecasts? Well, no, do, do you have any thoughts about the way the NSF has been operating since then? Or do you know? I mean, you, you've been out. You've been out of the loop. No, no. I, I, I know. I know. Uh, I don't want to get too far into all of the details. I can say when I decided to retire, I remember speaking to a couple of administrative personnel about it, and I still remember one woman who looked like a character in the Beetlejuice movie. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. <laughs> I, you know, I've seen pieces of it. I, could, I couldn't yeah. sit through the whole thing, but was she one of these zombie ghosts? Sort of people. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a scene in Beetlejuice where the guy has just died and now he's in the other world and what are they going to do with him? And they put him before a desk and there's this weird clerk with orange hair uh, who is eh, next. And he's like, my God, I just died. The guy next to me is a pygmy with a shrunken head. Just, yeah, yeah, <laughs> next. <laughs> and it was a lot like that. It was really weird what was happening that year. I think I'm pretty sure it started in 2013. Okay. And I was sort of halfway through the wave of stuff that happened. And I talked to a lot of people about what was happening. And I'm tempted to name names, but but I can say that there was a debate I had with a close friend who was high up in the management. And I said, We both agree something very bad has happened. We both agree there is this following stuff going on, but we don't know who's responsible. They're not telling us who they are. And there was one theory that it was Obama, and there was another theory that it was a guy in the Republican Party. And what can we say? There were different theories. I, I went to a university where one of the deans had heard about weird things. He said, the people we work with think it was the Gestapo. Are you Jewish? And I said, no, I'm not Jewish. Are you sure you're not Jewish? He told us the Gestapo came. I said, no, no, it wasn't that. Boy, talk about but, fake news, huh? Yeah. But but my, my, my theory, and it gets to be a theory, is that until about 2013, the deans and the American Physical Society were very much had us under their protection. Now, what do you mean by the deans? Do you mean the deans of the major universities? or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The universities had tremendous power at NSF. And I'm sure they still are listened to, but it was basically the APS and the deans between them, they could protect us from the worst evils of the world. And where are the worst evils of the world? My theory is that money in politics in Washington, D.C., twisted to serve special interests and special stakeholder friends. I have seen that work in many government agencies. After all, I was in DOE too. I interacted with a lot of agencies. Uh, my feeling is it was a shift to the stakeholders. And in 2014, in fact, I was invited to two meetings with stakeholders with very large financial commitments, and there are things they wanted from us very different from what NSF was giving them in the past. And when I looked at what they wanted me to give them, I said, okay, better I should retire than do what these guys want me to do. My goodness. I do remember reading a lot that a lot of the, a lot of the policies of NSF were painted by political issues, which is kind of sad. It was a big shift. It was a massive shift. Yeah. And it's not that NSF ignored politics. NSF broader impact is about serving society in general, 
Joe Bordonia was a pioneer of making people pay attention to broader impact, and that's good. Okay, who who is Joe Bordonia? Oh, he's another double E. I I should know him then. I'm a double E, so I don't though. Well, you you should have known him. Okay, he was a critical force in the history of NSF, and I had a lot of contact with him. Um, but <sighs> what stories do I not tell about Joe Bordonia? But 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 Joe Bordonia defended the concept of broader benefit. He had a vision of we should fund work which pushes the frontier, but it's also serving the larger needs of society in ways that others can't. And there's also the human development. I guess those were the three real priorities. So it sounds like you're saying that the status of NSF as as the temple of truth during when you were there has developed to the point where that's no longer true. Have you seen any development since then? Joe Bordonia was consistent with the Temple of Truth. It was later people. And as I say, we argued over who it is. They were very stealthy. Uh, and I got a lot of clues. Uh, but the question is, will we build back better, if you forgive the expression? <laughs> and and um, I, I forgive you, Paul. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, okay. I have a foot on both sides. And when I was at NSF, I did my damnedest to have a foot on both sides. You have that's, to. I mean, that's that's part of being a part of that organization. You try to remain apolitical as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was I think, probably part of the Bible, according to Vannevar Bush, that we want to be trustworthy and reliable for leaders in both parties. And whenever they try to do good for the country, we should always try to help them do good for the country. Yeah. And they may try to do good for the country in different ways, but if they're trying to do good for the country, we should try to make sure it works out for the best and that they're happy and we're happy and everybody's happy. And we don't want to take sides in political wars. And I took that to heart very, very deeply. I really tried to follow that. Well, I think you're mandated to do that by your job oh, yeah. description, right? I mean, it probably yeah. says in there, you can't be political. Probably yeah. just like people in the military, they can't take sides, political sides. Yeah. However, in the era of stakeholder politics, it gets to be a little dicey because if a big stakeholder tends to be associated with one party and not the other, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that as much. But I'm, I'm hoping they will build back better. And I see happy signs and I see bad signs. But what worries me the most is it took so damn much work to make it the temple of truth that it was. It's not enough to have an ordinary level of competence. And so there's some good intentions, but there are also some big stakeholders with money still in operation in both political parties. And the role of these big stakeholder money things and the difficulty of reconstructing what we used to have, I'm hopeful. I do what I can to help if I can, but uh, it's a hell of a challenge. You know, one of the interesting things historically is the involvement of big tech in technical development. I think of the heydays of Bell Labs. Now, Bell Labs, who had incredible advances, one of the things I'm really interested in, and I teach a course in it, is information theory. That came from Bell Labs. Uh, you know, the, the laser, many inventions came from Bell Labs, but Bell Labs folded because Somebody said, in order for a country to have a poet, the country has to be rich. And I think the Bell Labs began to lose that after divestiture. But now we're seeing 
we're seeing more involvement, especially in artificial intelligence, with people like Amazon and Google. Now, Bell Labs, in my knowledge, was always apolitical. We see a lot of political things happening with uh, Amazon and Google, and they're making great progress in places like deep learning. In fact, they're even making their AI software available to anybody who wants it. Google, for example, has made something called TensorFlow Neural Network Training available to all. I use it with my uh, graduate students. Yeah. And I've, I've heard, that, I have heard, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that Google's research budget is currently larger than NSF's. If that's true, that's really interesting. Yeah. So I, I have been following those things. Yeah. Uh, in fact, my younger daughter just recently retired from Google. And I have been in touch with some of those kind of people. After all, Sergey Brin was the guy who really brought us back to neural networks, right? But on the other hand, Sergey Brin kind of has other roles in the government now, and world politics is tricky. We're going to talk about Turing machines. Now, there are so-called specific task Turing machines, to give you a little background, and there's also general purpose Turing machines. One of the most famous specific task Turing machines cracked the Nazi Enigma code that helped win World War II. Uh, Alan Turing was on the team that cracked it at Benchley Park in England, and this is depicted in the movie, I think the name was Imitation Game, with Benedict Cumberbatch starring as Alan Turing. Uh, the Enigma code breaking machine was designed to solve one problem, specifically crack the Enigma code. So the question was, Alan Turing asked, the father of modern computer science, could there be a general Turing machine that could be programmed to simulate all specific tasks Turing machines? In other words, a Turing machine that could do anything, any algorithm that you wanted. Alan Turing introduced this machine in 1936, and the Church Turing thesis says any problem that can be performed on a super-duper modern computer could also be performed on a general Turing machine. It could take, though, a billion times as long, but we're still constrained by that. Quantum computers promise to incredibly increase computing speed and do Turing machine sort of operations. I want to ask you about David Deutsch. Because sure. he was the guy, I th was he your PhD advisor? No, I Carl Deutsch was my favorite. Car Carl Deutsch, okay. Carl Deutsch. D lots of Deutsches in the world, I guess. So, yeah, they keep coming up. They do. Uh, no relation, I suppose. But David Deutsch, he first proposed the quantum Turing machine. Um, uh, did you know Deutsch at all? I think I had them confused, I, the two Deutsches. Two uh, Deutsches. And, and I, I run across other Deutsches sometimes. But, but, um, but yeah, so... I mentioned Werbos.com. I have a new link on what is a soul and a new link on sustainable, intelligent internet. And we need a new type of internet, sustainable, intelligent internet. And on that website, I have links. One of them is to the quantum view of reality. Uh, actually, the mind, brain, and soul link, I talk a little bit about reality too, you know, souls are a reality. And, and in come to think of it, in that link, I talk about reality and I talk about David Deutsch. I say that David Deutsch, by all rights, should be a face that everybody on the earth knows as much as they owe, 
as they recognize Einstein. I began that YouTube talk on reality with four faces. First is Albert Einstein. And I believe in Einstein's view of reality. I didn't used to believe it, but I've learned a lot about how the math works. I believe that Einstein was basically right, even though it didn't seem like it, about his basic principles. He, he did make mistakes like everybody. And right next to him is David Deutsch. I put Einstein and David Deutsch on top. David Deutsch has two great things. So great, everybody should know his name and his face. One of the things is the modern version of the multiverse theory of physics, how the universe really works, according to David Deutsch. I believe that David Deutsch's theory of quantum physics is the best solid mainstream description anybody has of how the universe works. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. I think that there's, there's a bunch of different uh, models of quantum quantum mechanics. One is the uh, the Copenhagen model, and another one is the multi-universe sort of idea, which every which means that every time there's a quantum collapse, the two realities split off, and you have you have these different uh, different realities. And I think you're referring to David Deutsch as one who believed in the multi-universe. Yes. Is that right? Multiverse. Multiverse. Thank you. In fact, if you go to YouTube today, you can search on Deutsch multiverse, and you get some really neat YouTube videos. So I have to be careful. Everything in science, there are always these caveats, okay? So Deutsch has a version of how the universe works. Some of it actually started with a guy I met named Hugh Everett and John Wheeler. And I have some corrections to fix up Deutsch's model to make it a little more reliable. Now, Wheeler, Wheeler is the one that came up with the it from bit sort of thing. Is that the same Wheeler? Yeah, yeah. He's a creative guy. Boy, I guess so. Creative guys sometimes do more than one thing in their life. John Wheeler of Princeton certainly did a lot of different things yeah. in his life. Yeah, that's him. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, so so Everett, Wheeler, Deutsch, and my fixes to Deutsch, there is a theory, there's a version of the multiverse theory of physics, which I believe is by far the best mainstream version of how the universe works in existence. But I still believe Einstein was right anyway. Okay. Um, and, and I believe that I can believe both of those things because Einstein himself once said, quantum mechanics probably works because it's a good statistical description, a good statistical approximation of things that are actually more like my kind of theory down underneath. Okay, that's, that's the so-called hidden variable model. I believe. Some people phrase it that way. Yeah. Okay, the hidden variable. W wasn't that addressed negatively by, I think it was, um, Bell's Inequality? I, I can tell you the name. I know these guys. I knew some of these guys. Okay, so, so we live in this horrible world of fake history. And by coincidence, I had strange luck always to see the real history. So... When we talk about Bell's theorem and were hidden variables disproven, the story is worth a few minutes. It started with Einstein. Uh, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen said, if you guys, if your Heisenberg theory is true, I predict the following kind of thing with co correlated photons, and, and I don't believe it, we should do the experiment. 
And that's a very rational thing. But then nobody did the experiment. I think Bell had some papers of ideas and there were various theorems. And finally, one of my classmates at Harvard was part of a group of four people who really changed the world. Their names were Richard Holt, Clauser, Holt, Shimoni, and Horn. Mm-hmm. Um, and CHSH is their paper. If you look up CHSH, you'll probably get to one of their papers. Now, as it happens, they had like four important papers that year, and I got to see all of them. When I look today on the web, I only see one paper that's cited a lot. I think the other papers were really important too. But basically, the paper that really impressed me when I talked to my classmate over tea was the paper he showed me they just done where they proved a theorem. They said, if you have two entangled photons, if Einstein's kind of theory is true, the results will be in one region, but quantum mechanics predicts a different result. We can discriminate which is true by doing this experiment. Yeah, just a little bit of background. The the hidden variable model, see if I get this right, Paul. The uh, hidden variable model says that, yes, we have this model of quantum mechanics and we treat things as probabilities, but there's something happening deeper underneath that is going to explain it. And uh, this was the theory which was adopted by Einstein and Rosen and them. Is that pretty well the uh, the idea behind, behind the hidden variable? Okay, so this is where words get screwed up in science. Okay. And discussions of reality and consciousness and God. My God, do people do weird things with words. Um, my first language was mathematics, not English. And if I relied totally on <laughs> English, I would be totally confused. Paul, you're bilingual. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a friend from Nigeria. I, I was saying, yeah, I speak English as a second language. You know? <laughs> okay. Um, and, and that made a big difference. Um, but yeah, hidden variable. I don't use the term very often because people have really played games with those kind of words. But I do know what Einstein's point of view really was. And I do know that Einstein changed his views from one year to the next But the core vision of Albert Einstein, which I've slightly altered, I call hardcore Einstein realism. And in my old age, I have come to the conclusion, yeah, I believe in hardcore Einstein realism. But somebody would say, well, what the hell is it that you believe? I don't believe every word Einstein ever said. He said some pretty funny words. What is Einstein realism? Okay, so so in that web page, Mind, Souls, Brains, I have a link to a YouTube talk on reality. Actually, you could probably search on a Werbos reality on YouTube, probably would get there. I don't know. And in that talk, talking about reality, I start with a question you might appreciate, Bob. Okay. How can you believe in hardcore objective reality like Einstein or Ayn Rand or Lenin and also believe we have a soul and a spirit and a spiritual destiny, and they are real. Well, I think that boils down to your philosophy. Whether you're, uh, there's lots of uh, 
there's lots of theories which divide that question and which give you different answers. One of the things yeah. that we're looking at right now is at the Bradley Center is a so-called mind-brain problem and whether the mind is the same as the brain. And there's lots of emerging evidence through something called Leibniz experiment and near-death experiences, et cetera, which kind of illustrate that there's parts of the mind which are not resident in the brain. Yeah, I I, I agree with that Okay. Theoretical bottom line that you just stated. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's good. Okay. It took me a long time to face up to reality and to face up to the fact that reality is not as simple as it seems. Well, also, the thing is, in mathematics, as you know, Paul, there's lots of things which are uh, unknowable. Uh, You can prove things that exist, and you can also prove that they're unknowable. And you wonder if, if this applies to things such as consciousness in terms of a global understanding of what is going on. Boy, would I love to talk about that a little further. But okay. b- b- bottom line is the talk starts simple with Albert Einstein and goes from there to David Deutsch and hardcore Einstein realism. I don't even know if Einstein used the term hidden variables. I know he used terms like Lagrange-Euler equations and and Minkowski space. Um, But so there's that view of reality. But David Deutsch's theory is much more a mainstream theory. And one of the pieces of work I am proud of, frankly, I am the one who developed the mathematics which best connects Einstein's assumptions with what we see in the David Deutsch statistics. So at one point, Einstein said, I think you could deduce the Schrodinger equation from the statistics of my fields. And Norbert Wiener tried to do it. And he failed. I read his papers. They just didn't do it. He tried hard. Really? Uh, you know, Norbert Wiener, you know, for our, for our listening audience, is the founder. And in fact, he coined the word cybernetics, right? Yes, that's right. He's a very respectable guy. He couldn't solve this problem. And that's why I decided, you know, maybe I won't do this for my PhD thesis. Maybe it's a little too hard. It doesn't guarantee I'll graduate. I'll work on it after I graduate. So I did. And I finally figured out how to solve it. It took a long time. The papers are very heavy mathematics. They're not very well known. Some of them are new. But the bottom line is, um, I think that David Deutsch's approximation is the best that we have in mainstream science. It has been tested in quantum computing applications much more than all of these philosophical interpretations you read about. There are a million philosophical interpretations about what quantum mechanics should be. But David Deutsch's version of quantum multiverse technology, that's the one that has been used in the experiments, billions of dollars all over the world trying to make quantum technology. Oh, everybody's in a race to do quantum computing. So, So the quantum computing is based on David Deutsch's theory of quantum Turing machines. And that theory has been tested empirically at a level that these philosophers would not even dream of. The mm-hmm. empirical work that's gone into quantum information science, huge, it's by far the best empirical theory we have today of how quantum mechanics really works. Here's a question that I have for you, Paul. Um, and I don't know the answer to this. Turing's Enigma machine did one operation, right? It, it was designed to crack the Enigma code. 
in quantum computing, if you take a graduate class or an undergraduate class in quantum computing, you're introduced to things like Shor's algorithm, which does yep. cryptology, and Grover's algorithm, which do search. These remind me of special purpose Turing machines that are designed to do one operation. And yes. the thing I don't understand is Deutsch's, um, is his proposal to simulate a general purpose quantum computing machine, Turing machine. Yes. There are two pieces of work that I cite. Deutsch has done many things in his life, but whenever I got to be brief, there are always two things I cite from David Deutsch that everybody should know about. And one of them is the multiverse stuff. He has mm -hmm. a book and videos. And the other one is the quantum Turing machine. He has one well cited many other papers proving the universal quantum Turing machine. So the concept of a universal quantum Turing machine that's more universal than the old Turing machine, his theorem, his mathematics, his concept, and his design, his vision. So, so David Deutsch is a truly great person, but I need to be careful. Okay. Why do you need to be careful? Okay, because David Deutsch's vision of what is a universal quantum Turing machine, there's an analogy to Turing's vision of the universal Turing machine, yes? And you and I both know that Turing's vision of a universal Turing machine is not really the most universal thing you can do because it assumes binary type variables, and we know there's a thing called neural networks. And in fact, there's a paper I cite a lot by Siegelman and Sontag. Uh, there are other papers and people debate which is the best paper. I don't want to get into that kind of fight. But I often cite the paper by Siegelman and Sontag. And the basic idea, just in the classical world, forgetting the quantum world, in the classical world, the full power of analog neural network type architecture, it's like a whole level beyond what a Turing machine can do. So I think of the Turing machine as Aleph zero, the simple infinity, the countable yeah. infinity. And I think of the theorems of Sontag and Siegelman and other people as Aleph one computing, a continuum which is a much bigger infinity than Aleph zero. Yeah, the, the, the Aleph zero, Aleph, um, is, for example, the counting numbers, and it, it, is, it is a smaller infinity than the number of points on the interval from zero right. and one. This was pioneered yeah. by George Cantor, if I remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's the counter sequence. So now, bottom line, there is a paper in the journal Quantum Information Processing by Werbos and Dolmatova. Could you spell that last name, please? D-O-L-M-A-T-O-V-A. <laughs> so in that paper, which has a very interesting history and has an updated version, I say, look, Deutsch showed add quantum entanglement, add the big cats, the Schrodinger cats, and you go from one way of all F0 to all F1. That's basically what David Deutsch did with the Turing machine. I see. Do it another way, you go from all F0 to all F1. Do both of them, you can get to all F2 or all F3. 
Well, Olive too, by the way, I've heard described as all of the scribbles and shapes that you can draw on a sheet of paper. And I believe that all of three or higher is something which is beyond our comprehension. It's like a fourth spatial dimension or a fifth spatial dimension. Well, it's, but believe it or not, I hate to say it, it's not beyond my comprehension. Okay, good. (laughs) Because, because there is this paper. In fact, maybe I should even be more precise. The, the updated version of the paper I posted at werebos.com slash triphoton.pdf. T-R-I-P-H-O-T-O-N dot P-D-F. Okay. And basically that includes a roadmap for how to get past the quantum Turing machine to basically four more levels beyond that. And what do you think you can do with these higher level Turing machines that you can't do with Turing's original machine? Yeah. Well, I I might call these (laughs) post-Turing, but uh, what can we do? Uh, uh, To begin with, a lot. Also, it's the hardest math I've ever worked on in my life, and that is saying something. Well, one of the things one of the things classically a Turing machine can't do is things like the halting problem. Yeah. If you could come up with an ALIF one or ALIF two sort of machine to solve the halting problem, that would be an incredibly big deal. So, just two months ago, I put out a plan for how you could build what I call a quantum annealing of things and what you can do with it. And I view that as an example of a third generation quantum technology. Everything the US government is funding today is pretty much the first generation. It's all the quantum Turing machine. It's all the first generation. We had a leader for the Quantum Information Sciences Coordinating Group who was looking beyond the first generation. And he invited me to a big meeting in Baltimore in 2015. He was going to announce these new directions, but he died mysteriously. And there were only four people who were left of the plan he had to talk. One Indian, one Chinese, me, and a contractor. Okay, Paul, you need to hire some personal (laughs) protection here, don't you? No joke. So at any rate, uh, so at least since then, so far as I know, the U.S. government has pretty much focused on the quantum Turing machine. The more advanced generations, there is stuff in other countries, but not in the U.S. You know, Austin Egbert, who's our director, pointed out that you talked about quantum annealing. This is something being, I think, pursued by a company called D-Wave. Are you up on that? Absolutely. Okay. Are you impressed with what they're doing? Well, it, it, it turns out that I have, I think, a whole YouTube talk on quantum annealing. And it's certainly in the website that I sent you where I just this year came up with a plan. Now, in my original vision in the Triphoton paper, I described five generations of quantum computing, some of which are pretty hard to understand, frankly. And then what I did this year was I said, okay, why don't we try to do something simple? A friend of mine had an application in mind that had to do with astronomy. He said, can't you do better in this application? I said, you know, maybe I could use D-Wave. That's only third generation, but that third generation could be used to solve your problem in looking at the sky. And I got very excited by it. In fact, I even was talking to a friend of ours, you know, Don Wunsch. Oh, yeah. um, In Missouri. I was even trying to talk to his people. Hey, maybe we should try to get some IP because I have an idea how to use a D-Wave to solve this astronomy problem. I get a brush of greatness claim here. Don Wunsch was my PhD student, so... Ah. Okay, well, he's 
The future of NSF may depend a lot on him, actually. He, he does. He does great, incredible things. You know, I'm proud of him like a father. So Great. Okay. Well, I, I, uh, he is facing some pretty heavy challenges, but he also has some exciting opportunities. When I think about whether we will build back better, a lot of my hopes do involve Don. But God, is he facing a lot of heavy stuff? Well, again, I think as we talked in previous podcasts, when you come up with innovation, there's always an inertia, a resistance to That's that. That's an understatement. Yeah. yeah. Have I learned about that? But, but let me come back. So I was really excited. And then I studied D-Wave more. I studied the other stuff more than D-Wave. D-Wave was, eh, it's just third generation. I was more interested in the fifth. But I decided, okay, if we have a quick and dirty application that's really exciting, let's get the IP on how to use D-Wave. And then I got a friend from Canada, and he spoke to the D-Wave people, and I got a literature survey on D-Wave like you wouldn't believe. It's a gigantic literature from all directions. But basically what I found out is that D-Wave annealing is not true quantum annealing. D-Wave has real markets, it has real clients, it has useful tools that will forever be useful, it's got a big market, it's an important player, but at the center of its box, it does not have what I call a true quantum annealing box. So what I have posted this year are directions for how do you build a true quantum annealing box and how can you use it for applications D-Wave hasn't even thought of yet. Let's uh, let, let's go down a little rabbit trail here and explain what annealing is. Good. As I understand it, uh, the, the term comes from metallurgy. And the idea is how you cool down a molten metal to get optimal properties. Yeah. And if you cool it down just right, slow enough, you get a really good metal. If you do it too quickly, it's bad. The great example I've heard of is ice cubes. If you start with yeah. water and you freeze ice cubes real quickly, you get cracks in your ice cube. Whereas if you slowly lower the temperature, you get nice, clear ice cubes. Beautiful. Now, isn't, that, isn't that a nice, uh, nice explanation? It, it, it is beautiful. And in my explanation... For why D-Wave is great, but they don't have what they need for the greatest power. You know, they have a real market and a real product, but you can do a hell of a lot better. And the reason why they're not doing the best you could do is the people who design their system don't really understand what you just said. Okay. 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 They don't understand what you just said. With true annealing, and, and, and one reason I was able to figure this out is I knew about annealing, right? You're not the only one who's learned about it. I knew what real annealing is. We should say in, in, in machine learning, annealing corresponds to adding a lot of noise in the beginning and, yeah. and then slowing down the uh, noise. The more noise, the greater the temperature, the greater the shaking noise. So that's the, that's the translation. Go ahead, Paul. Okay, the truth is, I, I have learned about annealing from three sources. One of them is the stuff I just learned about D-Wave in the past year. The other one was the metallurgy and solid state physics stuff that I knew about from other engineering applications. Uh, it's not only metallurgy, it's also solar cells, to be honest. I learned about it from solar cells. And in addition, there is what you just mentioned. There's something called the Metropolis algorithm. So in pe people who do numerical algorithms know about a kind of annealing algorithm used by, for this metropolis kind of stochastic search. 
And that's the one I know the least about, ironically. <laughs> okay, let's back up. Let's back up a second. What's the big deal about quantum annealing, which in my cursory understanding uh, involves things like quantum tunneling and stuff? But what is what is the effect of quantum annealing and why is it such a big deal? And why is D-Wave interested in annealing? We all know about quantum computers and, and the fact you do all of these operations in parallel. But what about the quantum annealing and why are we interested in that? Okay, so... Again, we have to be really careful with words in this business because D-Wave sells a box, which is useful and it does something. And in my recent paper, when I had to be really precise, I called it DQUA, D-Wave type quantum annealing. And what I'm proposing is a different technology, which I'm calling true quantum annealing, TQUA. And there are three generations that you can build. The basic concept of true quantum annealing, my kind of quantum annealing, is basically following the vision that David Deutsch applied to digital computing. And, and, and so maybe I should explain a little bit about what David Deutsch's vision is. Okay. It starts with a cat. Uh, everything really important may start with a cat. Like Schrodinger's cat, right? Exactly that cat. And I've spent a lot of years learning about that cat. It's a very important cat. Um, <laughs> but we're not sure whether it's alive or dead. Right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some politicians like that. but uh, <laughs> uh, Zing. Okay. But I'll, I'll resist. It's a big and real subject. It's not a joke, really. It's, it's real. But, but coming back to this cat, um, most people probably need a refresher on what the real story is with Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger, de Broglie, and Einstein all believed the beauty of their new quantum field way of thinking over the old particle-based Lorentz physics. Lorentz believed in particles and matter, and all there is is force fields in Einstein's space. De Broglie, Schrodinger, and, and uh, Einstein were pretty much of the same school. And then came this Heisenberg guy, and Schrodinger, Einstein, and de Broglie couldn't believe half the things that Heisenberg said. And at some point, they realized the Geiger counter is sort of a quantum mechanical phenomenon, stochastic quantum mixed state thing. And so Schrodinger proposed this experiment. He said, okay, put a cat in a closet, point a gun at its head, have a Geiger counter control it with a timer so that it runs for three hours, and set the numbers so that quantum mechanics predicts precisely a 50% probability that the cat's brain gets shut out and a 50% probability nothing happens. That's the basic experiment. Oh, and the experimenter leaves the room, locks the door. Schrodinger said, the reason why you're crazy, Heisenberg, is because your crazy theory predicts the following. It predicts that as soon as you turn on this machine, the cat gets put into a mixed state so that half the cat is alive, half the cat is dead, and it still doesn't make up its mind even after the timer stops. It's sitting there half dead, half alive, and it doesn't change until the human opens the door and looks at it. And by the act of looking at the cat, you make it be alive or dead. Isn't that dumb, said Schrodinger. 
And that was also where Einstein's EPR experiment came from, was this sort of idea. However, EPR is sorry, Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen. Oh, okay, which, that was that, that was their thesis about hidden variables. Yeah. Okay, people call it Bell's theorem because it was done by CH and SH about Einstein. They liked Bell; he was their friend. Yes, uh, he you know he wrote a nice popular book, and it was a good book. But but um, but the actual theorem is different from any theorem that Bell ever published. It's a totally different theorem. And the implications are very different and very important. But, um, but yeah, they did the experiment and the, the cat, will it, is it alive or is it dead? The bottom line is Einstein lost his debate on the EPR experiment. The experiment disagreed with his intuition. But that doesn't mean he was wrong in his whole theory. That's why you have to get rid of part of his ideas, but not all. The key thing... In that experiment, David Deutsch has a different explanation for what happens. He said, okay, you shoot the Geiger counter, you can put a cat in a mixed state. You can generate a Schrodinger cat. You can generate a macroscopic object in a mixed state. You can split the universe into two parts, and and it's alive in one and dead in the other. And when you open the door, you connect yourself to the cat so there are two of you and the universe has split bigger so there's one of you that sees a dead cat and there's another one of you that sees the live cat and that's the multiverse man if that's true paul there's a lot of parallel universes man absolutely i didn't believe that for many years i was an ultra conservative i i read the work of a famous guy named tony leggett who argued that somehow there must be a way out of this. Maybe quantum entanglement breaks down with distance. And there have been thousands of experiments on this. And they all prove there are macroscopic Schrodinger cats. And that was David Deutsch's idea. He said, if you can put a cat in a mixed state, you can put a computer chip in a mixed state. And if you have enough leverage, instead of making two copies of the same chip in different states, you can make a million copies. Well, that's the foundation of quantum computing, right? Exactly. That's mm-hmm. what it is. It's quantum entanglement. It's herding cats. you got a million Schrodinger cats, if not a trillion Schrodinger cats, all at once, all doing different jobs, and then you put it together at the end, and it's parallel process. Yeah, but, 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 but the trick, I understand, is making it collapse to the correct solution, or in the multiverse case, making sure you're in the right multiverse. Uh, how, how do you assure that? Well, yeah, there, there is this, it's like defalsification. But, but let me come back, though, to the, to the point, if, forgive me if I, if I go back to the, where I was heading. Um, what Deutsch did was he showed that our old ideas of Turing computing can be generalized by making a programmable computer which runs a million programs on a million copies of the same chip in parallel. That, that's the core idea. And I, I just want to go that far right now. Sure. The thing is, though, it still is like a computer. It's like our concept of a classic Turing machine. You write a program, you hire programmers. The U.S. government has hired so many programmers to try to come up with good programs to make quantum computers do something. Mm -hmm. And that's where Shore comes into it because he came up with the first program 
that you could run to factor large numbers that just happen to be the critical thing you use for old style polynomial key coding with cryptography. There's a lot these guys don't know because they live in their little ivory towers. There's a lot of stuff they don't know about this stuff. And where to begin? Um, well, we started with D-Wave and the idea was, well, okay, instead of what if we are not trying to run a computer program? What if we define our task differently? What if we're trying to solve an optimization problem? That's the obvious thing you would want to do with annealing. So what if you want to build a box where you still have a million Schrodinger cats running around at the same time, and you want to do the quantum mechanics such that the cat which survives is the one you want. And that gets to your final ending, decoherence kind of stuff. Yes. Right. You want the cat you want to survive. You want the others to lose. If you know the physics, this is an obvious answer how you do that. You're using energy to represent what you want. You're mapping into a minimization problem. If you want lower energy, if you want to do annealing, in physics, what you do is you shed heat to your environment and you equilibrate to a state of low energy. That's how the physics works. These guys were not physicists. And so they didn't even consider the possibility of doing it that way. So instead of shedding energy to the environment, which is what my specification calls for, they just circle around in the environment they're in. And they, they adjust coupling coefficients, but they don't dissipate energy. It's entirely within the box. And they're entirely right that the minute you connect outside the box, you make life more complicated. But sometimes that's what you absolutely have to do if you want to get results. If you want a quantum computer that works, sometimes you need a cold environment. Same damn thing with a true quantum annealing. And you got to worry about, is the environment cold enough? Can you shed energy to it? But the bottom line is, if you design the box to do true annealing, where you're shedding energy to your environment, it's obvious to the right kind of physicist. But I read that literature and it wasn't obvious to any of them because they were all busy doing other stuff. Wow. I, I was kind of amazed when I discovered, my God, this is like the guy who leaves a $20 bill on the floor. You know? <laughs> I'll pick it up if I can. So, Paul, you're going you're gonna to supply us a lot of links to some of this literature so that we can put them on the podcast notes, right? Yeah, to true, true quantum annealing. Okay, excellent, excellent. We're out of time, and but I wanted to thank you, Paul, for your time you've spent with us. We've been talking to Paul Werbos. He's the inventor of the most commonly used technique to train artificial neural networks in the world, error backpropagation. And he's also doing some pioneering work in quantum computing, which is going to be the future of the world if we can ever get coherence, I guess. So thanks for listening. Until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. 
Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.